Well, in the military, we have a saying known as hurry up and wait. And if you want to know what life in the military is like, uh, Crystal knows this, it's a lot of hurry up and wait. And that's ingrained to, to us early on in basic training. We're told, move with purpose, move with a sense of urgency. We got places to be. We're late. You're always late. And then once you arrive at wherever it was you needed to be, you, like these guys, you wait. And in the military, there's actually two kinds of waiting. The first kind is what I've just described, the hurry up and wait kind of waiting. The second kind is known as readiness. So hurry up and wait is passive. You get your things in order, you submit the right form, and then you play the waiting game, and it's purely passive. There's really not much for you to do. Readiness, on the other hand, is active. Readiness is what you do to get ready to deploy. So in order to be in a state of readiness, you have to be green on your medical, your dental, your physical fitness, and whatever other job qualifications you need to do your job. So readiness is a kind of waiting, but it's not passively sitting around. You're constantly doing upgrade training, taking care of routine matters, things like that. Advent is a season of waiting. And the first Advent marks what we celebrate at Christmas, one of the great mysteries of our faith, the incarnation of the Son of God. The eternal Son of God assumed a human nature so that he was both fully God and fully man. And the first advent marks the arrival of Jesus as our promised Messiah who would save us from our sins. And now we look forward to the second advent, the return of Christ, when he will return to judge the world in righteousness and usher in the new heavens and the new earth. So Advent is a season of waiting, but it's not the passive hurry-up-and-wait kind of waiting. It's a season of active waiting, expectant watchfulness. It's a season of readiness. So as we look to the first Advent at Christmas time, we find instruction for how we ought to live as we await Christ's return. And this morning, I want to stir us up and encourage us to move toward a state of gospel readiness as we live in between the Advents. I want us to live as people who eagerly and expectantly look for opportunities to make the gospel known. That's what I mean by gospel readiness. I want us to be the kind of people who, as Peter says, are ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So at Christmas, we celebrate the glorious truth that the light of the world has come. And our task is to go announce that to people who may not even know that they are living in the darkness. Our passage this morning is Luke chapter 2, verses 25 through 38. And this passage is the last of the narrative units surrounding Jesus' birth and the gospel of Luke. Luke begins with the predictions of the birth of John the Baptist, then the prediction of the birth of Jesus, and then you have the meeting of the two mothers. You have Mary and Elizabeth who meet, and then you have the birth narrative of John and the birth narrative of Jesus. And then finally, you have Jesus' circumcision and presentation at the temple in Jerusalem. And all of this was done to fulfill the requirements of the law. And it's here where our passage picks up. But before I read, let me give you just some big picture things to keep in mind as we read. This is a story about hope fulfilled 
that leads to joyful exultation, joyful praise. It's a story about active readiness. And in this story, we have two figures, Simeon and Anna, who exemplified what it meant to live in a state of active readiness as they looked for the promised Messiah. And Simeon and Anna saw that this Christ child was the fulfillment of all of their hopes and longings. He was the fulfillment of all that they had been actively waiting for. And this leads them to spill over with praise. They give praise to God, and then they begin to share with others around them the significance of this child. So it's a story of faithful readiness leading to joyful exaltation. So let me read Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation. And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace, as you promised. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. His father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed, and a sword will pierce your own soul, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. There was also a prophetess, Anna, a daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was well along in years, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and was a widow for 84 years. She did not leave the temple, serving God night and day with fasting and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and to speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel, of Jerusalem. So as I said, this morning, I want to stir us up and move us toward a state of gospel readiness. What does that look like for us? My prayer is that as we look at the passage together, we would learn how to do that. And so I'm going to divide the passage up into two headings, uh, the first, hope fulfilled, and the second, joyful exaltation. So first, hope fulfilled, how does this passage reveal the full glory of Christ? And second, joyful exaltation, how does hope fulfilled lead us to joyful praise? So first, hope fulfilled. Let's consider how this passage reveals the full glory of Christ. At a basic level, the passage reveals a basic truth of the whole Bible, namely that the Bible itself is designed by God to reveal the full glory of Christ. The Bible's all about Jesus. So 2 Corinthians 1.20 says that all of God's promises are yes in him. So that means that Christ is the fulfillment of all of God's saving purposes. And so if the whole Bible 
is this unified story pointing to how Christ is the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan, then we should ask, how does our passage, how does Luke chapter 2 demonstrate that? How does Luke use the Bible? How does Luke use the Old Testament to show us how God's saving purposes are summed up and fulfilled in Christ? How does this passage teach us that Jesus is hope fulfilled? And I'm just going to highlight one way that Luke does this, one way that Luke uses the Bible to demonstrate how Jesus is hope fulfilled is by identifying Jesus with the long-awaited servant figure of Isaiah. Now, what's the significance of that? Who is that servant figure from Isaiah? Well, Isaiah was a prophet who warned Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, of God's judgment to come if they continued in their sin and their rebellion against God. And Isaiah predicted the fall of Jerusalem and their exile into Babylon. And then beginning in about Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah begins to prophesy this message of comfort and hope. And the later chapters of Isaiah speak of the servant figure who would redeem and restore the people of Israel and who would usher in this eternal kingdom of righteousness. So that's what's going on in the book of Isaiah. But by the time we get to Luke in Jesus' time, the Jews who had been exiled have now returned to Jerusalem to Jerusalem, and they're awaiting for this Messiah figure. And Luke presents both Simeon and Anna as people who are actively waiting. They're living faithfully, expectantly for this Messiah figure. They're living in a state of readiness. Simeon is a man righteous and devout, and the Holy Spirit was on him. Verse 26 tells us that the Holy Spirit revealed to him presumably in a dream or a vision, that he would not die before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Anna, likewise, is righteous, serving God daily in the temple with fasting and with prayer. So they're both exemplifying this active anticipation. And here's a key phrase from the passage, verse 25 of Simeon. It says, he was looking forward to Israel's consolation. And it's very similar to a phrase in verse 38 describing Anna when it says she began to speak about him to everyone else who was looking forward to the redemption of Israel. So that phrase, looking forward to, means expectantly waiting. That's where I get this idea of readiness. Simeon was actively waiting. For what? The consolation of Israel. And think about that word, consolation. What do you do when you console someone? You hold them. When someone needs to be consoled, they're troubled, they're suffering, they're broken. They need comfort and hope. So that's the state of Israel before Christ came into the world. So with that word consolation, longing for the consolation of Israel, Luke is alluding to Isaiah chapter 40. So in Isaiah 38 and 39, Isaiah prophesies Israel's exile into Babylon because of their sin and their rebellion. And then Isaiah 40 is this message of comfort. Israel sinned, 
and God justly judged their sin through Babylonian captivity. Yet, God is the faithful covenant Lord. He is the faithful covenant partner, even when Israel routinely is the unfaithful covenant partner. But as the faithful one, God himself promises this message of comfort, consolation for his people with this promise of restoration and the forgiveness of their sins. So Isaiah 40 begins, and it says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her that her time of hard service is over. Her iniquity has been pardoned. And then Isaiah 40 continues to describe the advent of this warrior shepherd in verses 9 through 11, who is the Lord himself who comes to take care of this flock. So verse 10 says, See, the Lord God comes with strength, and his power establishes his rule. His wages are with him, and his reward accompanies him. He protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them in the fold of his garment. He gently leads those that are nursing. So, of course, later in the Gospels, Jesus himself identifies himself as the good shepherd. So Simeon is anticipating, he's actively waiting for all of this to be fulfilled. He's longing for this warrior shepherd who will come and bring comfort to God's people. And it's important to note the nature of the comfort in Isaiah 40. The comfort is primarily the forgiveness of sins. That's the nature of the comfort. He promises her iniquity has been pardoned. And who can forgive sins but God alone? So Simeon sees Jesus as the one who will bring comfort. So this means he must be divine because only God can forgive sins. Only God can bring comfort in this sense. So Simeon has been living in this active state of readiness. He's been anticipating God's fulfillment. And then guided by the Holy Spirit, he enters the temple and he sees Jesus. He approaches Mary and Joseph. He takes Jesus up in his arms and he praises God with this prophetic hymn. He believes Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to comfort his people. And in the hymn, This is what Simeon says. He says, My eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and glory to your people Israel. Now that's a citation of Isaiah chapter 49, which speaks of this servant figure who would be a light to the nations, who would bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And so as Simeon holds this child in his arms, he's declaring from Scripture, from the Old Testament, that God's salvation has come. My eyes have seen your salvation. Jesus embodies God's salvation. So God's salvation is not merely an act of God, though it is that. It's God himself. God himself has come. God himself is our salvation. And in the Bible, salvation is often associated with light. That's a metaphor for salvation. So Simeon, in quoting Isaiah 49, says that Jesus is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. 
So let's think about that phrase in verse 32. Light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. What does it mean that Jesus is a light for revelation to the Gentiles? Well, in short, it means that God's salvation has come to the nations. God's salvation is now made known to all peoples. And this is a fulfillment of a promise that God gave to Abraham that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Genesis chapter 12. So Jesus is the offspring of Abraham. Jesus is the light who brings salvation to all the nations. Jesus is the one in whom all the nations would be blessed. He brings salvation to the world, people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And as we heard about last week, this is why every single one of those ministries exist. Uh, that's why One Link exists. That's why uh, river families like the Jeremets and the Amersheks live overseas. That's why Embrace and Hopesgate, FCA, CAYM, Youth Horizons, that's why these organizations exist. We proclaim the light of the world has come. And this is a message, this is a proclamation of life and hope that's only found in Jesus. He is a light to the nations, but what does it mean that he is glory to your people Israel? I think that's another way of speaking about the beauty and the splendor of salvation. That's what the word glory means, beauty. So God has been faithful to redeem Israel, and he's shown forth his light in such a way that all the peoples of the earth may get in on his promises that he made to Abraham. So this morning, we've spent a lot of time in Isaiah, but that's because Luke is using those passages in Isaiah to interpret the significance of Jesus. And he's demonstrating how Jesus is hope fulfilled. So let me say a brief word to bring this into our context. For Simeon and Anna, in terms of redemptive history, for much of their life, Christ had not yet come. Uh, for much of their lives, they're waiting for, they're longing for the consolation and the redemption of Israel. But for us, we live on the other side of incarnation. We live in a different moment of redemptive history. We live in between the advents. We know that God's salvation has come. And yet, we await the fullness of its consummation in the new heavens and the new earth. And so we live in a world still affected by sin, evil, human atrocities, disasters, suffering. And yet, for those in Christ, we suffer with hope. We have a message of hope fulfilled for the world, and that's a message worth screaming about. We have a message that light, salvation, has come. And light dispels the darkness. And the thing is, when you're dead in your sins and your trespasses, you're sitting in darkness, you might not even know that you're in the darkness. And all of us know people who need to hear this message of salvation. It might be some of you in this room. And Paul says that Satan, the god of this age, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they are in darkness. He has blinded their minds to keep them from seeing 
the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And that's why we proclaim the gospel. That's why we announce it. When we do that, we believe God is at work through his spirit to regenerate people's hearts. He's at work to remove the blinders from their eyes. God is at work to shine in their hearts and cause them to be born again. So 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. That's Genesis 1, 1. Think of that. The God who created the cosmos and said, let there be light, he spoke with power and brought the universe into existence, and that same power is at work to shine in your heart and give you saving light and knowledge of God's glory. Jesus is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. He is the light that shines in our hearts and enables us to see him as the glorious Savior that he is, the one who forgives us of our sin. He is the one who makes us alive together with him. He is our hope fulfilled. So that's the first heading, Jesus is our hope fulfilled. And the time that's left, I want to focus on how that leads to joyful exaltation. And I say this ought to lead us to joyful exaltation because that's the proper response to Jesus for the one who's been born again. But that's not the case for everyone. Simeon prophesies various responses to the person of Jesus. He says in verse 34, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed. And a sword will pierce your own soul that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. The Holy Spirit is going to convict you of sin. Jesus is this divisive figure who is going to make people come to a decision. And Luke develops this point in just a few chapters later in chapter 4 when Jesus is rejected at Nazareth. And the people there reject his message. Jesus reminds them, that the people, of his, the people of Israel have a history of rejecting their prophets. And he reminds them of the old prophets, Elijah and Elisha, where the Gentiles were blessed through their ministry. And when Jesus says that, it enrages the people. They become furious. So they become this angry mob, and they try to rush Jesus off the cliff. And in chapter 12... Jesus says, do you think that I came here to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. And I like to think that might be on Jesus' Christmas card, if he had one. But the point is, uh, Jesus did come to bring peace. He brought reconciliation with God. But the point of division here is that in order for there to be peace, there must be judgment made against sin. And so the division that Jesus speaks of is the future judgment, the, the separation of the righteous from the unrighteous, the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tear. Jesus knew that he would be, as Simeon said, a sign that would be opposed. Some would reject him. And John says some hate the light because they love the darkness. 
But that's not what I want to focus on. I want to focus on the response of Simeon and Anna. As I've said, they both exemplify active waiting. They expectantly waited for the consolation of Israel. And as they both realized that their hope was fulfilled, this leads them to spill over with joy and praise. Simeon overflows with praise. He holds up Jesus in his arms, he praises God, and he begins to prophesy over him. In verse 33, it says Mary and Joseph were amazed at what was being said about him. They they marveled at what God was doing. And then verse 34 says Simeon blessed them. So Simeon's response was to break forth into praise and to speak blessing on those around him. Similarly, Anna, the elderly prophetess, she too spills over with praise. So verse 38 says she began to thank God and to speak about him to all who were longing for the redemption of Israel. So she too breaks forth into praise and she begins to evangelize. She begins to share with others the significance of this child. And so they saw their hope fulfilled and that naturally led them to joyful exaltation. Both Simeon and Anna serve as examples then for us as we live in this in-between season between the Advents. This is a season of readiness, expectant waiting, and they lived in this active state of readiness, so we too should live in this gospel state of readiness. When they saw their hopes fulfilled, they were ready to share the good news with those around them. So as I conclude, let me offer two qualifications about gospel readiness and joyful exultation so I'm not misunderstood. So first, to say that we ought to live in a state of gospel readiness that leads to joyful exultation is not to say that this is easy or that This comes without effort. Readiness entails training and practice, just like you would practice the piano, just like you would practice basketball. Readiness entails training. Trace talks about gospel fluency, and his point is that this is a skill that you can develop. As you put forth effort, you can grow and develop. But it's important to remember that this Skill is not about perfection. When we share the gospel, our job is to be faithful to share it. So yes, we should pray for clarity. We should seek to speak clearly. That's biblical. Paul prays that for himself. Colossians 4, he says that he should proclaim the mystery of Christ with clarity as he ought. But God will work in spite of our shortcomings and all of our stumbling and all of our stammering. And often, I think we're afraid to share the gospel because we don't want to miss anything or we aren't confident in ourselves. But that's exactly why Paul prays as he does. In his speaking, he's praying for God's assistance, asking God to help him speak with boldness and with clarity. And second, joyful exultation. So exultation means to leap with joy. 
To joyfully exult in the gospel is not to ignore the reality of suffering or hardship. Rather, the gospel, the hope of the gospel, enables us to joyfully exult in Jesus in the midst of suffering and hardship. A few weeks ago at Thanksgiving, we heard from our River family, from a few who are rejoicing in the midst of hardship. We have this treasure in jars of clay. We are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And in the midst of trials and suffering, we cling to Jesus, knowing that he is our hope. He is the God of all comfort. He is the one who has promised that he will never leave us or forsake us. Our hope has come. That's weird. So our hope has come. May this lead us to joyful exultation as we share the good news with our family and with our friends. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that the light of the world has come. Jesus, we proclaim that in you alone is life, and that life is the light of men. And Father, for those who are in darkness, for those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, may the light of Christ remove the blinders from their eyes and cause them to be born again. And Father, may we be people of gospel readiness. May we be people ready to proclaim the good news of the gospel to the world. Amen.